I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our series verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. And we're talking this morning about what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, the vital and the essential role of prayer, but also uh, what Jesus himself went through. You know, um, you guys know what a dry town is where there's no alcohol. There are actually about 500 of them still left in America. Um, 83 of them are in Alaska. I don't know what that means. That's free information for you. But um, I, I, I read about a guy who was a businessman and he had raised money and gotten the permits that he needed to to open a tavern. And so he built, was gonna, he was in the process of building a tavern in one of these dry municipalities. And a church was really concerned about the impact that was going to have. And so they called a prayer meeting. They had a big prayer meeting. And um, two days after the prayer meeting, there was this huge storm and lightning struck the tavern and it burned to the ground. Um, And uh, the uh, owner got an attorney and he was bringing a suit against the church, blaming the church for the tavern burning down. And the church in response, got an attorney to say it wasn't their fault. Um, And the judge, when he looked at it, said, I don't know how this thing's going to come out, but one thing for sure is that we have a businessman here who definitely believes in the power of prayer and a church that doesn't. (laughs) So, you know, that's, um, I think, an important thing to say right at the beginning, because do do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you pray like you believe in the power of prayer? That's what we're all invited to do. Um, You know, the issue for the disciples at this all-night prayer meeting that was going on in the garden was staying awake. I don't know if you know who Eutychus is in the Bible. He's a minor character. You can read about him in Acts chapter 20. But he uh, actually fell asleep. The, The apostle Paul was preaching late one night. It was near midnight, I think it says in the passage. And Eutychus was sitting in a window and fell asleep. It says he fell asleep and fell out the window and died. And, uh, and that's just a, a word for you to not fall asleep when, you're, when I'm preaching here. I promise I won't go that long though. But then Paul goes down and raises him from the dead and brings him back upstairs and keeps preaching. It says until dawn. I'm sure everybody's eyes were like wide awake. Nobody was going to miss a word Paul said after that. But, um, you know, the disciples had this a struggle uh, to, to stay awake. And uh, it, they couldn't do it. It was hard for them. So the disciples had, had just had what would be their last meal with Jesus. And then it says they make their way across the Kidron Valley uh, to the other side, to the Mount of Olives. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives that you have the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Passover always happens on a full moon. So it would have been a full moon out. Uh, There would have been moon shadows as they walked and and, uh, moon lighting their way in a sense. But let's read the passage together. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd... And the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 
Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered today. Yes, tonight before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word for us. You know, it's always dangerous to presume that we will be faithful uh, in following the Lord. There are so many who have uh, fallen away when they go through hard times. I, I think there's a good warning for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. And so there's a certain humility that we all have to bring uh, when, we, when we come to the Lord and following him. Uh, along with Peter, who says he will never disown the Lord, James and John, the sons of thunder, had confidently said the same thing back in Mark chapter 10. They said, we want to drink the cup that Jesus drinks. Uh, we, we, they said in this passage, the same thing Peter did. We will never disown you. When Peter saw that night in the garden, what he saw would make him spiritually, eventually, as tough as nails for years to come. Short term was hard. Uh, they went through some big trials. But hopefully it will strengthen us and have that same impact for us as we look at this passage this morning. So the first thing we want to look at is how Jesus was strengthened. Um, the name Gethsemane that we have right at the beginning of the passage in verse 32 means literally oil press. And scholars believe that the garden belonged to a wealthy friend of, of Jesus and that uh, he was there. Not every olive garden had uh, a wine press, but this one did, hence the name Gethsemane. And that's where Jesus went uh, for this time alone with his 
disciples and with most importantly with the Lord. Jesus leaves most of the disciples, it seems, at the entrance. And then he takes Peter, James, and John deeper into the garden. And then he goes a little further, it seems. And, but he was undergoing a stress that none of us can even begin to fathom. Deeply distressed, it says in verse 33. And that literally means a, a terrified surprise. That's what was happening. Jesus knew the cross was coming. He knew what it meant. And not just that it was the most horrible way to die. If you look at any study on the death, of the, on, death on the cross, it's, it's a horrible, terrible way to die. But most importantly, that he would be taking on himself the sins of the world. And that was a horror that no one except God the Son could bear. Think of what Peter, James, and John heard. They heard Jesus say, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch. Jesus speaking to Peter, James, and John. And then in verse 35, Mark takes us further into Jesus' thinking. and, And it says, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And so Peter, James, and John, think about this. They could hear Jesus pray. They could see his tears. They, could, they, they observed the sweat pouring off his body. Jesus gets very specific with his request in verse 36. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And the word cup in the Bible is, was figurative for God's blessing sometimes, but it's also figurative for God's wrath. And, and, and we're going we're gonna to look at all that the cup implies. Uh, but Jesus is saying, and, and I think it's a cup of wrath when, it's, when he's looking at this cup. Uh, it's really a cup of, of both blessing and wrath. But we're going to look at, at what that is and what that means. But why did he ask for it to be removed? What did he see, Jesus see, when he, when he looked in that cup? What did that cup represent for him? One commentator suggests there are about five things that we can see, and we want to look at those. And it's important, I think, to consider them. And the first thing that Jesus uh, would, would think of when he's looking at the cup is sin. That's what it represented. It's on your outline. First thing on your outline is sin. In Jesus' divinity, he knows what he's about to do. He's about to bear the punishment of every sin that's ever been committed by every human who's ever lived. Every sin that's already been committed and every sin that will be committed in the future. For everyone who's alive and everyone who's yet to be alive. All of that was about to be poured on him. We can't even fathom that. We can't comprehend it. Isaiah 53, 6 explains it like this. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the, in the song that we sing sometimes in Christ alone, we sing till, the, uh, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what's happening on the cross. God's wrath is being satisfied. We will never get away from the cross because we will never get away from the gospel. And for the gospel to be preached, you have to preach the cross. And so sin 
is, is one thing that that cup represents. Uh, another thing, the second thing that cup represents, and the second one on your outline is anguish. It's this deep anguish. Jesus says God knew what he would have to suffer. But in the garden, suddenly it became very real. And yes, we, we recognize, we honor Jesus' divinity, but we, we also, and we see it here so clearly, see his humanity. Isaiah 51 calls the cup, the cup of staggering. In other words, the full fury of the, the full strength wrath of God was about to be unleashed on the one who was sinless, who had never sinned. The gospel writers describe with all kinds of detail what happened in Gethsemane. And in Luke 22, it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Um, I, I want you to know I'm an expert because I looked on WebMD. And WebMD says that sweating blood is called hemotidrosis. And it actually is, it's rare, but it can be caused by extreme distress or fear, such as facing death. So you want to know the stress? You feel like you have stress in your life? You have nothing like what Jesus experienced in the garden. That is stress. And with this extreme anxiety, Jesus, we see Jesus here really in all of his humanity. And he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. In, in his humanity, it's, it's, we, this is surprisingly powerful desire that we see in Jesus to avoid the cross. It overcame Jesus and he begs the Father, take this cup from me. Think about it this way. God would be no less holy God would be no less righteous if he had each one of us pay the, the full penalty for our sin and to be separated for all eternity from him. But he doesn't do that. It's only Jesus' unconditional love for us and, and for his father and to be obedient to his father that, that moves him to the cross. And yet there was a spiritual battle going on. And you have this on your outline. Satan was offering Jesus an alternative to obedience to God. He made self-sacrifice and self-preservation appear more attractive than death on the cross. Jesus cries out to the Father. He acknowledges the, the depth of his temptation and the desperate need he had for his Father's strength. You know what? We can't do the Christian life on our own. The Christian life isn't hard to live. It's impossible to live. But that's why God has given us his Holy Spirit to strengthen us in the same way that we see it strengthening Jesus here in the garden. And Satan will do everything he can to distract us when we pray. So how does he distract you? Uh, if you try to have your prayer time in bed, uh, that may not be the best place to have your prayer time. It can be pretty distracting. It'll put you right back to sleep. If you don't fall asleep on your own, Satan will put you to sleep because he doesn't want you talking with God. 
How do you deal with distractions? You know, I'm, as I know when I'm praying, sometimes I'm thinking of a conversation I had yesterday or the things I have to do tomorrow. And all of a sudden, all these things are going through my mind. I, I, one author said, most of us will admit experiencing something like that, and the rest of us are liars. <laughs> we, we all get distracted. That's just a common thing that we do. So, so how do we deal? How do you deal with distractions when they come into your life? One thing that you can do and that I've found helpful is to pray my, my distractions back to God. And, and I'll write them down maybe. And I'll just say, okay, Lord, here's what I need to focus on, all right? And I, I want to pray about that distraction, whatever that distraction is. Um, another thing that, that I, I find helpful and that I think is good is to engage our emotions. And what I mean by that is not getting hyped up as we pray. Uh, but, but think of it like the way David dealt with his emotions. Sometimes David, it was like he was interrogating his emotions. He says in, in, in Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? So he's questioning his emotions. Sometimes he, when he doesn't feel emotional, he's engaging his emotion by, by calling on him. And he says, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Come on, emotions, let's bless his holy name. All that is within me. Uh, or, or, or sometimes he would reason with his emotions. Our, our emotions should, should be subject to the way we think and to, to thinking correctly. But David said in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yes, I'm afraid, but I don't need to be afraid. So he would reason with his emotions. And then sometimes he would... Again, if that's your situation, sometimes maybe you need to talk back to your emotions. Engage them. Uh, engage them with the truth. And that's why the importance of knowing God's word. Because that's how we can speak back to our emotions. Verse 35 says, Jesus fell to the ground. And that's really interesting because in the Greek, that's in the imperfect tense, which means it happens over and over and over again. It's like Jesus walked a short way and then he fell. We know from Matthew that he fell at one point on his knees and then he walked a short way again and fell again. We know from Luke that one time he fell on his face. And so this happens. And he kept doing this for an hour. And while he was pleading at the same time for, for, for this mission to be taken away from him. And then the third thing that cup represents is sacrifice. Sacrifice. You know, it was just over four years ago, believe it or not, that we had this, uh, another one of these uh, mass shootings in a high school. So all of them are so senseless in Parkland, Florida. And I don't know if you remember the guy, Aaron Feist, but he was, a, he was a, an assistant football coach. And, and when one of the shooters came by, he threw his body over a bunch of the kids and he was killed. But his sacrifice gave life to a, a bunch of people. And he died a hero. As Jesus looks deeper into the cup, he sees beyond the sin and beyond the suffering and he recognizes himself as the final sacrifice. John 18 says that they went, when they went to Gethsemane, they crossed over the Kidron Valley, like we mentioned. And the brook that flowed through the Kidron Valley wasn't an important one, but it was basically, it had become a drainage ditch for the temple. 
William Barclay, who's a historian and a commentator, says that on a typical uh, typical Passover, there would be a, 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 as many as 250,000 lambs sacrificed. Can you believe all the blood that that would be? So William Barclay says this, the blood of those lambs would drain down through this brook into the Jordan River. On Passover night, when Jesus was going to Gethsemane, he would have stepped over that brook and he could see in it the colored, the colored red of, with the blood of lambs. And he knew that in a few hours, he was going to be slain as the final sacrificial lamb of God. His blood satisfying the righteous demands of God's justice. So he's a sacrifice. And then when Jesus looked into that cup, he would also understand that it meant separation. That's the next one on your outline, separation. What Jesus saw was something that caused him to, be, to, to, to tremble in horror because he was about to face separation from his father when all the sins of the world would be piled on him. Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he felt that forsakenness of the father. This cup would be almost unbearable in that Jesus just for a moment would have to be separated from his father. Revelation chapter 14 describes God's wrath as poured full of strength into the cup of his anger. That's what Jesus saw. It's almost with the full impact of this separation from the father hits Jesus again in his humanity like a brick right between his eyes. And and he staggers under the weight of that. He staggers under the blow. Think about it like this. If Jesus trembled at the thought of being separated from his father for just a moment to bear the sins of the world, what must it be like for those who are without God to be separated from him for all eternity? And then at the bottom of the cup was something sweet, and that's salvation. Jesus had to be thinking of salvation when he looked at that cup. He knew that this was a cup that he would drink for the salvation of man, for our sins. Think of Mark 10, 45, that we've said over and again that it's the key verse in, in the gospel of Mark. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we typically use the word ransom to refer to money paid to a kidnapper to get a victim released. He's holding hostage. Jesus ransoms us, as we've said, from the wrath of God. Which means that we never need to fear God's condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. Wow, what a... What a joy we have that we don't have to live in a condemned way. In ransoming us from God's wrath, it means that we're no longer compelled to sin. We don't have to sin. God lovingly has provided for such an emergency, but we don't have to sin. We we can live out the reality of who we are in Christ. We can draw on the strength of the Holy Spirit to live that out, daily turning from sin, daily walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And as Jesus prays at the end of verse 36, yet not what I will, but what you will. His prayer was not to do something other than God's will. He, he did pray that if it was a possibility of fulfilling the mission without the cross, he'd be happy about that. Being 100% human, like Jesus was, he was pleading for another way. But even more than pleading for another way, he wanted what God wanted for him. He wanted God's will in his life. Jesus says in John chapter 4 and again in John chapter 6 and John chapter 10, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So doing the Father's will culminated in this act of submission to the Father. And Jesus drank all of that cup, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of our sin. And what, it, what, what, what was it to, that gave Jesus the strength to do that? Well, looking at the text, we have to say it was his prayer. It was his dependent prayer on God. Look at verse 32, underline, it says he prayed. Highlight that. You know, it's interesting in Mark, there are three recorded prayers of Jesus. One, in, you've got the references in your, uh, in your outline, one in chapter one. Uh, another one in chapter 6 and one in chapter 14. And I don't think it's by accident that Mark shows Jesus praying at the beginning and in the middle and at the end of his life. And Mark is saying, if you really want to have a fundamental understanding of who Jesus is, you need to understand that prayer made him tick. Prayer, his communication from the Father was who he was. And so you've got this on your outline that Jesus relied heavily on his intimate communication with the Father. If Jesus needed a life of dependent prayer to fulfill God's will, wow, think about it, folks. How much more do we need that? How much more do we need a life of dependent prayer on God as his adopted sons and daughters that we should depend on that? And that's the reality that brings us to point number two on the outline, and that is the strengthening of the disciples. So Jesus invited his inner circle, the three, Peter, James, and John, to be with him in Gethsemane. Not only did he want his closest friends with him because of what he was going through, but he, and this is on your outline again as well, they needed to learn, as he did, the vital role of prayer in their lives. Jesus knew that they had to know, know this lesson. And so it says in verse 34, Jesus says to them, stay here and keep watch. He wants them to pray. He wants them to observe. He wants them to watch what's going on with him. Because Jesus wanted them to observe his battle. Their failure that night underlines the need we all have of what Jesus was teaching them in verse 38. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And we all know this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is saying that if we enter into prayer like he did, then we will have the resolve we need to make it through whatever comes our way. And I know from talking with many of you that you have difficult things coming your way, that you're right in the midst of. All kinds of difficult things, all kinds of challenges. How do you get the strength to make it through those challenges? 
There's only one way, and that's with communication with God. He's speaking to you through his word. He wants you to communicate to him through prayer. These guys were tired. By this time, it's probably one or two in the morning, and they'd just eaten a big meal. And on top of that, they had to be emotionally exhausted and spiritually exhausted. And Jesus wanted so badly for them to learn this lesson in the midst of his agony. What did he do? He returned three times to check on them. Are you watching? Are you praying? Are you with me in this? Are you seeing what I'm going through? The first time he singles out Peter, look at verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And they're all sleeping, but he says, Simon, he says to Peter, are you asleep? Rhetorical question, because he could see Jesus was, Jesus could see he was sleeping. Could you not watch for one hour? Again, how long he'd been praying. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Hey, no one understood weakness more than Jesus. No one understands temptation. You don't understand temptation and the power of it by giving in to temptation. You understand temptation when you resist it and the power of temptation. So who could resist it more than Jesus? Who resisted it more than Jesus? So he understands their weakness. So he knew that they must pray or that they would fall. And so Mark follows it up a second time in verses 39 and 40, once more, a second time. He went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. No excuses. And then finally, verses 41 and 42, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Jesus was so strengthened in prayer after he'd asked in verse 35 that the hour might pass him that he finally accepts it. Look at verse 41. The hour has come. So he knows what God's will is now. And he goes out and he wins the greatest victory ever, ever won for you on the cross to pay for your sins and my sins. The disciples all failed. And significantly, Peter, who fell asleep three times and went on to deny Jesus three times when he was so emphatic about not ever disowning Jesus. But all was not lost because this low point helped them to learn what they needed to make their lives like godly steel so that they would be unmovable in their spiritual lives. And Peter and James, how did they die? They died martyrs' deaths. John endured to the end. So what does that teach us? Number three on your outline is how are we as a church strengthened? What are the lessons we need to learn from this? You know, it begins with if we truly follow Christ, we are going to all face our Gethsemanes. So uh, John 15, Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If Jesus went through this time in Gethsemane, why would we think we'd be any different? And Gethsemane means we know what God's will is, but we also know our desires and how much we need God's strength to choose what he wants over what we want. 
Where do these Gethsemanes happen? Well, I find they happen a lot with people, with relationships. Why? Because real life happens. People disappoint us. Even people we love the most, even the people we're closest to. We have a choice. We can do what we want to do or we can choose to love them and forgive them. What will we choose? What will you choose? Maybe your Gethsemane is personal. Maybe it's an addiction or depression. Maybe it's uh, anger or a, a mental health issue or a physical battle. We've all been there. We all know these battles. In our lives in Christ, it takes a lifetime to learn to make him Lord of every area of our lives. Is Jesus truly number one in your life? Do you long to honor him more than anything else or do you fight against his will? How difficult is it for you to sacrifice money and, and power and position and whatever else it might be for you for the kingdom of God? Gethsemane calls us to set aside our selfish pride and look only to Jesus. Gethsemane is God's invitation to set aside what we love in our flesh and our desires, our own desires for a life in the kingdom of God that we can't see, that's unseen, that's unimaginable, but that is eternal and real. And so you have this on your outline, the strength to see us through the inevitable Gethsemanes that come our way happens with dependent prayer. We depend on the Father. Sometimes prayer delivers us from our Gethsemanes, but normally it happens like it happened for Jesus. We get delivered through our Gethsemanes. We should be praying for each other. Parents, you should be praying every day for your children. Children, you should be praying for your parents. Grandparents, you should be praying for your children and your grandchildren every day, bringing them by name before the Father. And yes, we should be praying all the time. Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray continually. But we also need to have a time set aside where we pray in a concentrated way. We should pray for each other. We should pray. I know you guys are creatures of habit. You all sit in the same place every Sunday. So pray for the people you sit around. Get to know them by name. Find out what their prayer requests are. Pray for them right there. But pray for them throughout the week. We need to pray for each other. We're not talking about legalism here. Legalism is, is the core of, at the core says we gain favor with God by doing this. That's not why we're doing this. We're talking about an athletic-like discipline that will make us more in line with God's purposes for our lives, that will make us more like Jesus. So verse 38 is a command for each of us, and he gives us the reason why. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus anticipates the cup he's about to drink. And so this is a review of, of the first point. He, in that cup, he sees sin, and he sees anguish, 
and he sees sacrifice, and he also sees separation and salvation. He voluntarily lines up his will with his father's will. And we bring whatever is on our heart to God. Whatever's on your heart. Be honest with God. But in the end, we say, not my will, but your will be done. And this is on your outline again. Because prayer is not about getting God to do my will. It's bringing me to conform with his will. Jesus went in the garden full of sorrow. But he comes out strengthened. Because he's talking to the Father. And before he finished his prayer, we know that the father sent a heavenly messenger to his son. Because it says in Luke 24, Jesus sent, uh, that God sends an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. You know, sometimes I feel like God uses you guys like angels in my life to encourage me uh, to say a right word at the right time. And and we can be that for each other. Uh, What does the writer to the Hebrews say? Some of us have entertained angels unaware. Maybe that's you. So Jesus comes to this place of prayer with a spirit of resolve and assurance that prepares him to go to the cross. Now he's ready. And when we step back, and this is on your outline, and look at what Jesus did in Gethsemane, it gives us a pattern for our prayers in our own Gethsemanes. Have friends around you who are committed to pray. Spend time alone with God. Allow him to speak to you through his word. You speak to him through prayer. Pour out your heart to him. Be completely honest with God. He knows your heart anyway. Be honest with God. Submit to his will. And he will strengthen you. And when you walk out of your garden, I I think right away, it, it, it gives you the grace, because you've experienced God's grace, to be able to turn around and help others who need God's grace. to to give them forgiveness, to extend God's grace to them. So I want to close with these words from from Max Lucado, who's an author and pastor. You've got him on your outline. He, He writes this, the battle is won. You may have thought it was won on Golgotha, where Jesus died. It wasn't. You may have thought the sign of victory is the empty tomb. It isn't. The final battle was won in Gethsemane. And the sign of conquest is Jesus at peace in the olive trees. For it was in the garden that he made his decision. He would rather go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. And so Gethsemane was hell for Jesus, but I'm so thankful he went through it. Because if there is no Gethsemane, there's no Calvary. And if there's no Calvary, there's no empty tomb. And if there's no empty tomb, there's only hell for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this amazing comfort for all the hard times we go through. Jesus suffering for us in the garden and voluntarily going to the cross out of love for us. Help us to see what it costs you to love us so that we can know the full depth and height and width and breadth of your love so that we can be transformed into the likeness of your son who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, my prayer for you is that the God of peace will equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you and have a great day. And please find out some prayer requests from the people around you.